What's going on, guys? We are back. Another episode of the You Know Ball podcast, and I am very excited to have back onto the podcast Mark Schindler of Premium Hoops. Mark is on a time constraint today, so we're going to fly through some of this stuff. What's going on, Mark? Uh, not a whole ton, man. I appreciate you having me on. I'm glad to be back on the You Know Ball pod. It's uh, I always enjoy talking and, and <laughs> seeing each other on the timeline. Uh, exchanging Keith Pompey uh, ad reads is always a great time. Uh, some fire ones this morning. <laughs> Uh-oh. Some fantastic uh, name pronunciation. Yes, uh, but no, I uh, I'm in a crunch because I'm supposed to have my draft guide done already, and it's not yet. But it will be tonight or tomorrow, so it'll be done before the draft. But it's just yeah. a, it's a matter of actually having it happen. Yeah. All right, that's what that's what draft week's all about, baby. Cramming, cramming right before the draft, yes. which is what we will be doing right now. Um, so some reports have come out in the last few days that the Sixers are very likely to trade the 28th pick. This is a philosophy that Daryl Morey used for his last five years in Houston as he was trying to build a contender there with the Rockets, trying to essentially maximize James Harden's prime and his time with the Houston Rockets. This is something that I, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about because I kind of have a differing philosophy on the trade the late first round pick for a veteran as opposed to keeping the pick and essentially trusting your own scouting. Um, So what do you think in terms, just like big picture, like for the Sixers here, like what do you think trading, like is trading the pick for a a, a quote unquote win now vet the right move or is keeping the pick and trying to maybe develop a guy in house that could be a contributor the right move? That's a good question. And I think uh, it's very tough because it depends on the team. Obviously, I do think the back end of this first round has quite a few guys who could become contributors on their rookie deal to a winning team. Um, It's so tough, too, because one of the things I've really thought about with Daryl and the way that he did things in Houston is obviously it worked. But um, I I think there like you can see how difficult it is to do all of the cap maneuvers that he had to do in Houston. And I think if you're able to bring somebody in, especially towards the end of the first round on a cost controlled rookie scale deal, like if you get a guy like, I mean, we're going to talk about him later, but like if you bring in Joel AIE, he's a guy who's probably contributing in your rotation, but before the end of his rookie deal or not, not just probably like he is. Um, And just the fact that you could have a guy who was maybe like your seventh or eighth man, maybe spot starts and he's only in there on like $3 million a year. Like that means something compared to, you know, having to trade for guys who are on the mid-level exception, looking at things like that. So I think it's obviously, you know, it depends on how you view your championship window. And I think right now Daryl views it as ASAP, which I I would agree with, but it's definitely a 50-50 toss up with this. Definitely. And, and, and the Embiid thing, as everyone kind of looks at Joel Embiid with his health history, these big guys that have injuries don't tend to play deep into their 30s. So you're looking at the next three to five years as that window, which happens to line up with Daryl Morey's contract with the Sixers. So it could be one of those situations where you are looking to trade the pick, get that win now vet. But there's... There's no guarantee that if you were to trade, obviously there's a higher amount of success if you are to trade for the quote-unquote win-now veteran type Mm -hmm. guy, but there are occasions where those kind of moves don't tend to work out. The Sixers just had one earlier this year with George Hill. Like, you know, George Hill was asked to do too much for the Sixers for what they needed because their top end of the roster didn't have enough shot creation. And we saw the pitfalls of that. Not that he was terrible, but he was mostly non-existent for the Sixers in the playoffs when it mattered most. And that was thought to be like a safe move. It was thought to be like the move that like the like John Hollinger loved that move because John because John being the guy that he is, he was a former GM. <clears throat> He liked the contract. He liked the kind of value that a, a veteran like George Hill could bring. But at the same time, you can look at it like you said, where you can get these contributors on their their rookie deals, and you can essentially use that to extend the window as well. So like if you're able to get this cheap depth with the 28th pick, which by the way, the Sixers have gotten a few guys later in the draft recently that contributed to teams on their rookie deals. Landry Shamit was was a late first round pick. Tyrese Maxey was a late first round pick, was already contributing in the playoffs, even arguably more so than a guy like George Hill. Um, and then you also have some guys in the second round that have shown some flashes in Isaiah Joe 
and uh, Shake Milton obviously has contributed so far on his rookie deal. So it's not like it's not like an either or thing. If you can, if you draft that guy that you think can contribute either immediately or within two to three years, it gives you a lot of flexibility in terms of like working around that Joel Embiid supermax, which we all know is coming. And you also already have two max guys. On top of that, to me, it's like if let's just say they take a more high upside guy instead of going for uh, an, an AI type player, they go for a uh, Jaden Springer or a Trey Mann or someone that might be there at the end of the first, which I don't even know why those guys would be there at 28, but apparently that that's the word around the street. And if you were to take one of those guys, all you really need them to do is show flashes in their rookie season and you can potentially move that guy if a Damian Lillard becomes available next offseason, even if Bradley Beal wants out before the trade deadline. And then your package that you have for a potential superstar is even better than if you were to trade for like Tomas Sadoransky or someone like that who argue who would probably contribute more this year, but wouldn't necessarily raise your ceiling in a way that a potential star could, if that makes any sense, right? No, yeah, that totally makes sense. And I think it's all about like trying to weigh that um uh that that opportunity cost in a way. Because I think like if you trade the the pick right now, then yeah, you're getting a known commodity, but um you also lose out on flexibility moving forward. Like you're mentioning, I think even like, I mean, Shake's value probably depreciated a little bit because he struggled so much towards the end of the year, even which made me sad because he was so good earlier in the year. Um, but like, even then, like, I, I think you can, in some ways, if you're, if you really hit with a back end first round pick or early in the second or something that can, it, like, I don't like just talking about things in terms of value, but like, that's just realistic. Like, like you're mentioning, like if you pick Trey Manning as a really good rookie year, then that's enticing and valuable to people. Like looking at Tyrese Maxey, like we saw this year, like um, he was thrown around in trade talks a lot and understandably because he's looking very good. But I also think you can look at this next year too and say, okay, well, maybe Tyrese is ready to step into a bigger role. And I think he will be maybe Isaiah Joe. Like I'm very hopeful. Like I think Isaiah Joe is the guy who the Sixers really need to hit this next year because they just need that kind of shooting off movement. And, and like, there's just very little of that fur con sometimes. And that's kind of it. Um, and but he might not exactly. be even on the team. So, yeah, yeah, precisely. So I, uh, it, it, again, it's all opportunity costs. I don't really have a great answer with it. I think with this, I would keep the pick personally, but that's also because I'm like extremely draft pilled right now and have been like super invested in it. So I, I think, you know, if you're in a different perspective, you might think otherwise. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense, but I, I just want to go over some names. I, I decided to look back at the last two drafts because I feel like that's enough of, of recent history to kind of at least take a little bit of information from. Obviously, it's mm -hmm. a very small sample of picks, and it can be – there's a lot of randomness to this. There's a, there's a lot of situations where guys get drafted into bad situations. One thing that you've talked a lot about on your draft podcast is having a plan for a guy. And a guy gets thrown into a situation where he doesn't have a development plan, he doesn't have a role on the team, and then he doesn't really hit on his first contract because of that. But there are situations where guys have been thrown into winning situations, into losing situations, and they've at least been able to show that they can be valuable NBA players. And examples of this, from the last two drafts, I looked at the three picks before the Sixers pick, so the 25th pick, and the three picks after the Sixers pick, the third to the 31st pick. Mm -hmm. So last year, you in that range, you had Emmanuel Click quickly who contributed to a playoff team and was a huge surprise to a lot of people in terms of that contributing in his rookie year Peyton Pritchard also another guy you know older guy but was able to contribute to a Celtics team and provided them in in a similar way to shake two years ago or sham it a few years ago for the Sixers it was he filled a role on that team that they desperately needed, which is someone that is just an absolute gunner and can provide that offensive value and doesn't get absolutely killed on the defensive end. So you have you have that. You have more high upside guys like Jalen McDaniels, Malachi Flynn. Uh, and then you have someone, another contributor, uh, Desmond Bain, who went with the 30th pick last year, which never made any sense to me. I was very Not, high on Desmond. Yeah. yeah. Like I was Bain, Bain and Maxi were like my two guys that I were eyeing at, at 21 for the Sixers specifically. 
And I remember when he slipped all the way to the end of the first, I was like, and he showed you already contributing in the playoffs, contributing to a team that obviously was a lower playoff seed, but like these guys can make a difference early on. And then the year before you had Keldon Johnson was in that range, Kevin Porter Jr., which that was for behavioral stuff, but still he was there and Nicholas Claxton as well. And then Jordan Poole, who started to come on for the Warriors this year. So like there's nine guys and 12 picks that actually contributed in their first or second year. So it's not like this is a complete dead zone of the draft where it's like the middle of the second and you're just throwing shit at the wall. And the fact that there are so many high upside guys earlier in this draft could leave you with a lot of these kind of guys towards the end of the first. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think that's a great point. And I think um, like taking again, like looking at the context with everything, um, Nick Claxton had kind of a weird role at Georgia. Like he was kind of he, like in some ways he was their lead ball handler, even yeah. as, as a big, it was very awkward to watch, but like he flexed some of that stuff, uh, in the NBA too, like with his playmaking, um, Keldon Johnson is kind of like, uh, the rule is just like bet on Kentucky guys in some ways, or at least I would say guards. Um, I don't know if I'm going to apply it to big men, but like, <laughs> like you can look at, uh, like Keldon, like Keldon was kind of back cast at, at Kentucky and he didn't have a terrible like year there, but it wasn't awesome. Um, I think he only averaged like 10 or 11 points per game with like, okay, shooting efficiency, but like, you know, whatever. Um, I think you could apply that to somebody like BJ Boston this year, who I know we'll probably talk about later, but like there are guys who like just taking context with each role and there are reasons why guys fall out um, or, or fall to the back. And um, even then, like, I think you could look at guys who are maybe going to be older. Like, I don't think Chris Duarte is going to fall that far. seems like he might end up going lottery even. Yeah, um, wow. He's really risen. Yeah, recently. he's risen like crazy. But I think there are guys who are older, like even, you know, like we, we already mentioned AI, but like there are guys who are going to be like maybe a little bit like two or three years into a college career that are going to be towards the back that I think would, would make a lot of sense. Yeah, absolutely. And it's like... It, 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 it can be one of those situations. I tend to be the more high upside guy. I think that you tend to think similarly to me in terms of like, I know that you've talked a lot about on your podcast, which is like, you know, it's great that you can just get a guy and, and plug him in and play him. But like, if you can find a Pascal Siakam, an OG Ananobi, a Fred Van Fleet, like what the Raptors have done, like I want the Sixers to mold themselves in that kind of drafting mindset where you're getting the steal of the draft essential or in Fred Van Fleet's case, he didn't even get drafted. And now you're looking at these guys and you're saying, wow, that's a really solid young core that they have there. They've been able to develop them. They've been able to get the most out of them. And these are guys that contributed to a championship already. So in their rookie so, deals. So the only pushback I would have is it's tough to do that as the Sixers right now because, like, you have to look at how um, – like, obviously, I mean, Siakam had one of the craziest ascensions I've ever seen out of a player like going from, like, an eight-minute-per-game guy to playing, like, you know, almost spot starting as, like, the first big off the bench and then starting, and then he was an all-star and then made all-NBA. Yeah. So, like, that is not something that I would ever expect anybody else to do. Like, that just doesn't happen often. But also, like um, – given how the roles are shaken out right now already, like it's um, it's different looking at like, even with how good that Toronto team was before Kawhi got there, like they weren't really a title contending team. Like they were trying to contend, but they still played really deep. Um, I think you can look at a team like it's, it's more like you look at like where the Pacers are at right now or where, you know, if, if well, no, that doesn't work for the Blazers anymore because Dave's probably not going to be there, but like <laughs> you look at like the Knicks or somebody like, even if you're trying to make the playoffs, there's still room to like, say, okay, well, we're going to throw in these guys and try and get them reps and um, see what that looks like moving forward. But with the Sixers, it's just hard because, like, I think you could argue that they could have played Tyrese more this year. Like, if they should have. I mean, if Maxie's on a different team, maybe he starts more games um, and just plays more minutes. And same thing with, like, somebody like Shake, but, like, Shake does not. And rightfully so. I mean, because the team is trying to make – I mean, they want to make the conference finals or bust. Like – and, and, and go on from there. And if Shake is not shooting well, they are not going to play him and they can't. And that's another thing too. Like if you're looking, all right, well, there are a lot of these rookies. If they go through a shooting slump, they need to be able to play through it if they're going to hit some of those higher outcomes, but it's just not going to happen here. That's um, definitely true. So there is that's a little bit of, uh, it's it's a, it's a definitely a push-pull thing. One of the things that helps is that Doc is always willing to play the bench. So regardless of, <laughs> but of context. He, so. But he will always play the 10-year veteran over yes, the yeah, young guy. Like Scott that. over Isaiah Joe yes. always. So 
But occasionally he'll fall in love with one of the young guys. I know yep. that Shake Shake was in his third season this year, technically, but like he really was in his second season and he got a lot of run throughout the season. Um, you know, Maxi's leash was a lot shorter. He didn't play Isaiah Joe, which I didn't really get. Uh, I think that Firkin was a good regular season player, but like you said, like I would have rather one of the things I would like to see from Doc next season, and and I hope that Maury sets him up for this is kind of similarly to like what the Bucks did, where it's like they just try a bunch of shit in the regular season and see what yeah. sticks instead of trying to go for that one seed because it it proved that like there is a difference between regular season success and playoff success. And there are certain things that you need to figure out about your team over the course of a season and whether that's playing a younger guy and letting him live with his failures or maybe trying to play Tobias at the five or Ben at the five if Ben is even on the team, we'll say. But like these things that could have potentially helped the Sixers in the uh, in the playoffs didn't come to fruition in the playoffs because they just never had the opportunity to try them in the regular season because they were always chasing that one seed. So I hope that perspective-wise, they can look at it like there are two different seasons, the regular yeah. season and the playoffs. And like, if Joel Embiid plays 50 games, we're making the playoffs. So let's not worry about the regular season record as much as long as we can get a top six seed and avoid that play-in. Let's try some different things. Let's let's get, take these upside swing type guys. And then even if you want to go for the safer pick, if you want to go for a Jared Butler, if you want to go for someone that you can kind of just like plug in right away, then in that case, that's fine too. Then like you said, you have your seventh or eighth man that can do the spot starting and and you have that guy for the next few years if you don't trade him. And it's it's essentially just plugging in at positions that the Sixers need. And I don't think that the Sixers are in a position right now, like I said this, I don't think they have enough high-end playoff talent to the point where you can just say, we're drafting a stretch big because we need a stretch big. Like, no. Mm -hmm. Like, draft the best player available. And at the end of the first round this year, it seems like, at least, a lot of these guys that are going to be available are going to be guards and potentially maybe some wings thrown in there uh Kessler Edwards Josh Christopher BJ Boston those kind of guys but the majority of those guys that are going to be there are the point guard shooting guard the combo guards that the Sixers need so it kind of it kind of matches up well with what the Sixers need if that makes sense yeah definitely yeah so let's talk a few about a few of these guys um so give me your thoughts on Jaden Springer because like the thing about Jaden Springer is like he doesn't really pop off the tape when I watch. Like there are certain guys I watch, and like it might just be the real Hooper brain that has been invested <laughs> in in me over the over the course of the last few months. But there are certain guys that where you watch the tape and you just go, you can see something special with them. And with Jaden Springer, I see he does a lot of things really well. But like I know a lot of NBA draft guys, especially draft Twitter guys, who are like super high on him, and I maybe not might not see it in the tape or the highlights like some people that study the tape more often. It kind of reminds me of Shea Gilgis Alexander a few years ago where it's like he didn't really jump off uh, off the screen to me, but I could tell that there was something there with him. So what do you think of Jaden Springer and like why is he falling so late into the first round seemingly when it's like this guy could potentially be a lottery talent? Yeah, so I have him top 10 on my board right now. Um, he's somebody who I've been really interested in this entire year because he uh, he's a really interesting case of how we look at athleticism. Um, part of it is he played with an ankle injury most of the year at Tennessee, so it sapped some of his burst. He looked a lot better at the combine. Um, I think you have to look at it in terms of the way that he was doing things instead of what was happening. So, like um, – he was taking a lot of pull-up mid-rangers, which were not fantastic for him. I think he shot like 29% on, on long twos, which is not good. But you can see the power generation that he has is kind of ridiculous. He's very strong, like incredibly strong, like outlier strong for somebody's size and age. Um, like he's so good at understanding and reading angles. Like as an interior passer, he's pretty incredible. Um he has already like part of it is because Rick Barnes has them do this dumb shit at Tennessee where they post up to keep possessions alive. I don't mm. personally like it, um, whatever, you know, but it does like give him some interesting stuff, like because I think he's kind of a combo guard coming in, but I think he's going to develop into a lead ball handler because he's shown some of the playmaking stuff. Um, I like how he gets to the rim. 
Uh, even if, like, again, even like taking into account, like, okay, he's not getting a ton of separation, but he's good at it, like the traditional separation that you're imagining with a really quick first step, like watching somebody like Sharif Cooper. But with with Jaden, he's so good at using his his elbows, his arms, just getting little bump offs to to generate a small angle for himself to find an avenue to get to the rim or to, to get a shot up. Um, and I think the touch indicators are there. Uh, and again, like just the way that he sees the floor, especially when he gets two feet in the paint is, is really, really fantastic to me. So I think you look at him and the baseline is a guy who takes threes and plays defense, which I hate saying three and D because it's so overused. Um, <laughs> but he's just, he's he, I think he's going to be a lot more than that. But the point is like the baseline is he could be a guy who is, you know, an all defense team guy. Like he's that good defensively um, or will be as he grows out. He already showed a lot of that at Tennessee is to grow more as an off ball defender. But um, I believe very much so in Jane Springer. And if he were to fall to 28 in, in the Sixers, like it, I mean, I'll be pissed at every team that lets him pass the 28, but like if the Sixers didn't take him at 28, that would be a mistake. That seems to be the consensus from draft Twitter is like, he's a top 10 guy. He's just good at all of the little things. He get, he's shown a lot of that potential that some of these later first round guys might not have in terms of like, if you want to take the, like he could be a safe pick and a high upside pick at the yeah. same time, which is like, those guys tend to go very high. Like those, like I know that uh, Ben from formerly of uh, prep to pro pod, was like saying he was better than Jalen Suggs going into the season. And I think that he has them in the same tier now. And Jalen Suggs is going in the top five, undoubtedly. So like, I I mean, everything that you said makes me think like, this is the kind of guy that Maury would be like, like if one of the things we've talked about is like, he tends to value those guys who are willing three-point shooters who can shoot the three. And then on top of that, they're just like basically like muck it up defenders. And if Springer brings that with potentially that lead ball handler in his future, I could absolutely see that being some a, a Mori pick similarly to the way that I saw it with Maxi last year. Obviously, the three-point shooting was not there for Maxi, but I think that he'll slowly develop that part of his game. Springer mm-hmm. shot like 40% from three, didn't he? Yeah, to, to be fair, it was on low volume. I think he took 2.9 a game yeah, or something like that. Yeah, it wasn't very But minute, granted, but... like, I think the form looks fine. I'm not really worried about that. Yeah. He's a good free throw shooter. Like, Yeah, 81% whatever. from the line. Like, yeah, yeah I, I believe it, that, like... And a lot of people will like get mad at me when I tweet about like, oh, we should take this player that might have like a questionable shot just because, of course, the Sixers history of drafting yeah. guys, Michael Carter Williams, Fultz, Ben, like everyone that they've drafted with that has had these shooting issues. Um, I totally understand it. They yelled at me last year when I said that we the maxi pick was brilliant and blah, blah, blah. But now they're obviously loving it. But at the same time, you the guys that you're getting at the end of the first round are not going to be perfect finished products. And a lot of the times the guys that you're getting at the top of the draft aren't that way either. And like shooting is easier to develop than a lot of other skills that like, even like the next guy we'll talk about on our list is Sharif Cooper, who like, the shooting was not there in college. Like the three point shot he shot in the twenties, um, you know, his free throw shooting was good, but uh, you know, a lot of people, have serious questions about him because of his size and because of does he potentially grow into that kind of shooter that he can be. So uh, why don't you talk a little bit about Sharif Cooper and like, I, I love him, but I'm also real Hooper brained right now. So you have <laughs> yeah. to, you have to take that. No. Like he, he jumps off the screen for sure. Yeah. He's um he's interesting to me. I, he's another guy. Like, I think I understand him being lower, uh, and I didn't even answer the second part of your question. I have no idea why Jane Springer is that far down. I mean, I think oh, yeah. probably bring up like that he didn't look bursty at Tennessee. Um, and they'll mention that, you know, his production wasn't anything crazy, but I also just think that's taking a lot of things out of context. Um, and he looking at Sharif, like a, he, he seems like a Presty guy though. Like I yeah. could see Presty swinging oh, on yeah, him definitely. at six, 16 or 18. Definitely. Like I, th- I think that that's probably where he'll end up going. I would actually really doesn't. like that fit too, but yeah. Um, yeah. with Sharif, I have him top 10 as well, but I think a lot of the hangups with him are what happens if he doesn't develop a shot. I still think it's like a little bit overrated. I'd rather miss uh, on drafting Sharif than miss out on him because I think like he's that good of a passer and not just a good passer. Like he can get anywhere he wants on the court, which is like, that's 
Like if you can have the ball handling on top of the playmaking, that's kind of everything. Um, and I think the shot, like I understand the concerns, but also he just has incredible touch already. Like it's not like top of the top. He's not like Trey level with touch. Like Trey had much better touch when he was at Oklahoma, in my opinion. Um, I wasn't like super draft uh, enthusiast then. Like this is my first real cycle of being deep in it, but um, just in going back through. But I mean, he's shown some of the floater touch already. I think he's going to be better around the rim. Um and I mean, just if, when you have a guy that's that good of a passer with that kind of accuracy, I think I just bank on him becoming a shooter. The question is going to be, is he going to be a pull-up shooter? Uh, because that changes how he's able to leverage things. But also, I think even if he just becomes a stationary shooter or a guy who comes off of a screen and has to get set first before he takes a shot, like that's still a very, very valuable player because he's the second best passer in the draft, in my opinion. It's him and Josh Giddier, too, for me. Obviously behind Cade, but um, but no, like, one's I understand Cade, the size, so we don't have to worry yeah, about that. Yeah, only, exactly, yeah. only Detroit has to worry about that. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, the size concerns are like those are real with Sharif. Um, I think a lot of people have maybe gone too far in saying like, oh, you know, you don't have to be too worried about it. Like Trey didn't get picked on in the playoffs. I'm like, well, nobody had the capabilities to, to pick on Trey that they played. Oh, against. we know that. We know yeah. that very well. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> so I look at that and I'm like, I understand the defensive concerns, but also like thinking about it. How many teams really have the opportunity to pick on Sharif Cooper or Trey Young? Like, I think I was talking about this with one of my friends the other day, and I think there are maybe like four or five teams in the NBA that I would even be like that concerned about. Um, you know, okay, well, maybe Sharif's going to get absolutely run over. Like the Nets, the yeah, Clippers, the Clippers yeah. Boston, if they can figure out what the hell's going on in their backcourt, mm-hmm. and like uh, the, maybe the Lakers a little bit because of yep. LeBron. Um, but outside of that, I'm like, okay. Well, yeah, but like, look at like the way that the Hawks did things, and I, I know this is a Sixers pod, so I'll keep it brief with Hawks. Stuff, no, no, but, you're good. Like, look at like the way this. that they built things. Like, it's you. It makes it a little bit harder in how to construct your team, but also, okay, if you're not one of the four or five teams who has dictation of what happens in free agency, you have to be willing to take risks to build your team differently. Because what the hell else are you doing? Like, yep. I mean, when you can get a player like Sharif, who if he were three inches taller, he would probably go top i mean he would definitely go top five in this draft um if he were the same height as jalen suggs he would go ahead of jalen suggs um so i just i i think you have to be willing to accept the flaws to take on what the potential could be um and even if he doesn't hit as you know like if he doesn't become a pull-up shooter if he doesn't become like even just a normal shooter which i think he will be like he's improved on stuff already just looking at stuff in the combine like he's taken a lot of the lean out of the jumper i think that'll be better and like we saw with max maxi like Sometimes smaller guys just need a little bit more time to figure out shots because they're not as strong coming in. It's a farther back line. It just takes time. Yeah. Um, but like he has an elite skill already. Like even if he doesn't start ASAP, he could be one of the best backup point guards in the league with what he brings playmaking wise. Totally um, agree. So I think yeah. it would be odd with him and Max. Like I don't think him and Max. It would be very tenuous to have him and Max in the <laughs> backcourt. Like Maxi tries really hard on defense. I think he'll be fine at the point of attack. But like. Um, that's just a very big lack of size, but also if you're at pick 28, like you take that guy. Totally. Yeah. That that's my whole thing is like, as you said, these, these guys that are at the later, or as I said earlier, the guys that are at the later end of the first round, like you can't, you don't really have the luxury of being able to be like, well, this guy has this flaw and that flaw. And one of the Mm -hmm. team building philosophies that I've thought a lot about is exactly what you were talking about with the Atlanta Hawks, where they essentially at all times have four or five guys on the court depending on if Clint Capella is Clint Capella is such an off ball threat that you don't even mind the fact that he can't really handle the ball all that much. But like, if you essentially have all of these guys that can create their own shot, you have all these guys that can set up teammates, the dribble pass shoot guys that, your offense is almost always going to outscore the other team. Even if your defense is, has a little bit of deficiencies due to those players defensive deficiencies the league is geared towards offense now and like you know while guys of course guys that can't put it on the floor are always going to have some sort of value especially big men and three and d guys like danny green and stuff like that like there is something to having a 
at least three guys, maybe four guys, that can just attack defensive mismatches. It's why Kevin Herter was destroying Seth Curry in the playoffs there where, like, the Sixers couldn't really, uh, you know, keep up with with that, even though Seth was shooting the lights out on the other end of the floor. Like, there, there definitely is concerns when it comes to, like, that size deficiency for the Sixers mm-hmm. because you have Maxi, you have Seth, and I would understand if they would want to draft a bigger guard, but like you said, like, this late in the first, like just just take the guy that you think that is going to be like a stud and figure out the rest later because you don't know who's going to be on your championship roster. Like you just don't. Like if you're contending and you're a champion, like the Bucks this year are very different than what the Bucks looked like last year and the year before that. Like like the ch- rosters are constantly changing and and the guys that the Sixers have, especially in Maxi and Seth, like if they pop off. I'm sorry, if they if Maxi pops off next year and Seth continues to show his value and Sharif is also fantastic, like you're gonna be able to move one of those guys for someone exactly. that might be a better fit. And like I just think just worry more about getting as many good basketball players as possible and ones that potentially have elite passing and playmaking skills. And then worry about like that guy's tape, like is just undeniably good, dude. Like exactly, I just, yeah. Like I watched a few just like scouting reports of him, and I was I was blown away with his passing ability. But like I don't read too much into the stats thing. But like here's an example of and and keep in mind, Sharif's is not the prospect that Trey Young was, and he's also not the shooter. Uh, even like efficient scorer that Trey is just because he's not a great finisher. He's not, you know, he can't shoot the three all the well that well yet. Um, But there have been two players since 1992, 93 that have averaged 20 points, eight assists and shot over 80% from the free throw line. And it's Trey young and Sharif Cooper. So like, I think that like, obviously that's i think cosmos does that on twitter a lot where he'll like pick out the stat filter things obviously that's a very like specific thing but like that shows you that this kid at like 19 years old can do this like i think that he's going to be a special talent in the nba uh so all right let's move on to a few other guys i already talked about trey man i like trey man a lot i think that he could potentially be uh, a, a contributor, uh, probably more so down the line than immediately, but I, I like his game. So I've already talked about him. So let's talk a little bit about Josh Christopher and BJ Boston. Do you? I don't really know all that much about them. I just know they were super high recruits that have fell all the way to the end end of the first, beginning of the second. Yeah, so I would be a lot higher for BJ in uh, in Philadelphia because he's a guy who, like, yeah, I think he. I want to say he was fifth uh on rsci coming into kentucky and one of the reasons you have to look at it is kentucky was just a dumpster fire this year in the way everything went um I, it's still devastating thing about what happened with terrence clark horrible um, but even just looking at, at basketball like uh with bj like he, he really struggled in terms of generating any kind of separation uh with the ball in his hands just did not look like the same kind of athlete that I think a lot of people were expecting him to at this level. Um, but I also think you could just look at it in terms of him maybe being an underdeveloped athlete right now. Like I think he's six six, he's six five or six six, and he like weighs about as much as I do, and I'm five foot eight. So right. like I think uh PD Webb has put it really great in looking at like there are a lot of guys who have come in with that body type that were able to excel um after you know, not the not not that they were bad in college, but like looking at like Cam Reddish and, and Brandon Ingram are very similar body type guys who came in very slim with those long frames, and you can work on building that body up. He's somebody who I think will take more time though. Like I'm just not sure. Um, like I, I think he's a guy who could contribute to a team eventually with like on his rookie deal, but like it's just going to take time and like working with the strength strength and conditioning program, having the opportunity to rep things out. But I like him as like. Um, I know his shooting numbers were not good this year, but his shots started to come around for stretches. I mean, he's shown some capability hitting stuff off the dribble for mid range. I like his release point. Like, I mean, he's got a very high shot. Um, I'm not like, I, I hate like throwing out the moniker. I'm not a shot doctor, but like, I don't have like uh, in, an estimate of like what his shooting is going to be like, but um, he's, he sees the floor pretty well. I like his, him as like a connective passer, somebody who, I think if he is able to to maybe gain some athleticism through strength games, um, like he could attack and do some things in, in second side creation. And I, I think he'll be a positive defender too, um, you know, as he wraps things out. But um, it's different with Josh because Josh is like insane. Like he was six foot four. I think he shot 74% at the rim last year as a guard, wow. which is just like absurd. But 
there's, Mike there's Bridges numbers. <laughs> yeah, but like, so the problem with him is he is just a really low field player right now. Like he does not see the court very well. Um, without the ball in his hands, he just doesn't add a lot of value currently on the court, which for the Sixers, like, I just don't know what the fit would be like. I, I think like he's the guy, if if if, if Philly were to draft him, they'd, they'd basically have to be like, okay, you're going to just get either a thousand reps in the G League and we'll bring you up eventually, or you're going to run a, just a, a shit ton of pick and roll with the bench and try and develop that stuff. But Philadelphia's not really in a spot to do that right now. True. Um, like, I think he's a guy who, like, I have him in the first round on my board because he's like, I, I just think you have to be willing to bet on guys who were fantastic in high school but had less than ideal situations. Like, Arizona State was um, a pretty rough watch in, like, every way, shape, and form last year. Um, but he's just not a good defender right now. Like, he's kind of – again, it's just it, – he's kind of – to me, he's sort of like looking at Jonathan Kaminga. Um, but I think he's probably a little bit farther ahead in terms of his field of the game. Like, uh, some people try and ascribe it as them not having high motors or not trying hard, and I don't like that. I just think, like, you have to look at it and notice sometimes. Like, Jonathan Kaminga started playing basketball three years ago. So, like, he's playing against <laughs> NBA-level athletes this past year, and this is not meant as something to, like, rebuke – uh, any kind of, uh, you know, negativity towards him, because I think like there, he should not be somebody who goes top five. Like, I think you have yeah. to look at that and be fair, but like also worth noting, like, I just don't like saying somebody doesn't have a high motor when it's really, the, he just is not caught up to the speed of the game. So like, he doesn't yeah. see things happening until it's too late. So you don't move your feet. That's not a not trying thing. That's a, you, it just takes a while to learn things. And Absolutely. that's kind of the same state that Christopher is in, in some ways. Um, like he gets absolutely er eradicated by screens. Uh, so, you know, that's it, it. That would not be great for the 76ers defense. But I, I would definitely say like both guys have a lot of value. Um, but I think BJ would have more to uh, to the Sixers. Yeah, he's somebody I who I think will probably go higher in the draft than people are mocking him right now. Well, that's good. I mean, I don't think that the Sixers are going to be interested in either of those guys. They did bring out yeah. Josh, bring in Josh Christopher for a workout, but I don't envision them taking that high of an upswing type guy unless they ought, they think they have like a safe floor and mm -hmm. I just like you said I don't think they're going to be able to develop their games in Philly in the same way let's talk quickly about two guys that we've mentioned already Jared Butler from Baylor who I don't even know why this guy's falling I like him a lot too I think that he's like an ultra safe pick and just potential to be a really good player and then Joel Joel Ayayi from Gonzaga who is like the king cutter of this class yeah, so Jared Butler would actually be absolutely perfect for the 76ers. Like he is if they could get anybody who is, you know, that without a massive fall in the draft, he's the guy. And I think if he were available at 28, that is a massive fall. I have him in the lottery right now. Um like fantastic off the dribble shooter, very quick, uh just getting the ball up. He has a really compact shot. Like he's got one of the shots I believe in the most. Like I put this clip up against West Virginia last week where um like off of an inbounds, he like curls in um gets kind of denied so he like flares out to uh to the corner catches the ball off balance and and still gets it up like perfectly square like that's the kind of stuff where like i think you have to look sometimes for shot difficulty and like if a guy's able to maintain their form still under really difficult shots like that's impressive to me and that means more in terms of translating their shot at the next level that's just where i'm at right now that might change for me as i as i move forward with looking at the draft but that's where i'm at right now is um, he is it crazy to say that i think i think he's going to be better than davion mitchell like i yeah, I, I, I have just, him above davion mitchell right now like i think davion probably I think davion will be fine but i think yeah. like i'm not as low on davion over. as i think a lot of people who cover the draft are on, yeah. on twitter i should say like he's gone i'm not as high as i think some of the mock drafts have him um, but with Jared, like, yeah. And I think too, like, he's definitely a combo guard, but he's, uh, but that's more in terms of size and skill set. Like he's not awesome getting downhill. Like he's going to need screens to really generate separation, but at the same time, that's okay. Like the, the one weird thing with the fit is, uh, I mean, Joel is just not a good role, man. Like he's yep. good at, like he can pass out of the short roll a little bit. Um, obviously he has rim gravity, but he's not a lob threat for the most part. Um, or not like, I mean, it's not that he isn't a loud threat, but you know, like he's not an awesome vertical guy. So that's not really his game. Like, I think he would be interesting if like, let's say, okay, if Paul Reed really develops this year and he's playing as the backup center, which hopefully happens, uh, because I don't know if they could handle more Dwight minutes. Um, <laughs> Definitely can't. like, I think you could say like, I mean, Jerry Butler is a really good lob passer. I love his, He has, he throws like a backhand lob pass, uh, out of pick and roll. It's really good. He's good scoring out of pick and roll. 
Um, he can make some kickout passes. Like I think he makes enough of the reads where he can run an offense for a stretch, but also just is an electric scorer off the ball. Like he moves really well without the ball in his hands. He relocates. Um, he would be so awesome for the Sixers. Like he would basically do a lot of the things Seth does while being better defensively and having a little bit more size and playmaking. Yeah, I totally believe in him. And then uh, for Ayayi, uh, I I just like everyone seems to keep saying like he's an amazing cutter. Like he seems to be very smart player off the ball. He can handle a little bit like uh, I think that would be more of the if they don't trade the pick for a veteran, another win now type guy. I think Butler would fall into that category, too. I think he's 21. I don't think he's like super young, but he's not super old either. Kind of similar to Desmond Bain coming out last year, who was like 21 going on 22. Um, and then, yeah, so I know you've got to run. It's one forty-five. I appreciate you coming on here. Uh, I'm, I'm going to talk some, some targets that the Sixers might have for the 28th pick in a trade potentially, but I'm going to let you go. Uh, Mark, once again, you can follow Mark. I'll leave all the links in the description down here. Premium Hoops has been awesome. Uh, Sense of Scalability, their other podcast, has been absolutely awesome, especially during the draft process. The Cam Thomas, Alperin, uh, Shangun episode was literally the best draft podcast I listened to this cycle. So highly recommend that one. Um, and uh, yeah, appreciate you coming on, bro. I really appreciate you having me, dude. This was this was great. I'm sorry we had to cut it short. It's just no worries. Uh, dude. Once the draft is over, I'll have a lot more time for uh, for a little bit. But I thanks, man. Bud. I appreciate you. <laughs> yeah, peace, have a good bud. one. So this is the part of the podcast I did not have time to get to with Mark. Um, Unfortunately, he had to run, but I want to run through some trade targets that I think that the Sixers could potentially utilize in a trade if they are to move off this 28th pick and they don't end up drafting anyone. There are a few guys on this list that I think that everyone here has heard before on the podcast they're familiar with. There are some guys that I'm very interested in. And just some ideas I want to throw out there because right now there are a few different ways that the Sixers can essentially get back a good player for the 28th pick. There is the $8 million trade exception, which was generated from the Danny Green Al Horford trade. They could use that to bring back a player who makes less than $8 million or up to $8 million. There is George Hill's contract, who of all the players on the team, I would imagine George Hill is the most likely to be traded. He's one of the few guys with an expiring contract next year. He makes about $10 million, so you could get a decent player back. You could also guarantee Anthony Tolliver's deal, which is about $2.8 million. So it's going to get you in that $13 to $16 million range for a player back in a trade. So some of the guys that are on my list, if you would do those two plus the 28th pick, you might need to figure out some third teams to get involved here to take on salary or to send players to the team that you're getting the player from. There's a lot of different machinations of this that you could do, but right now the guys that I would keep my eye on are Contavious Caldwell-Pope for the Lakers. He's apparently been reported to be on the move this offseason. So if they were to trade him to say, let's say Sacramento, and Sacramento sent back Buddy Heald to them, and the Sixers were able to send uh, George Hale and Anthony Tolliver in their first-round pick, and maybe the the Kings get two first-round picks for Buddy Heald, and then just salary filler, essentially. That could be a move that could potentially work. I believe that the, that works salary-wise. I like Contavious Caldwell-Pope. He's a big body. He's a wing. The Sixers could use as many 3-and-D wings as they can. Maury obviously showed that he valued the Lakers' formula for winning a title from two years ago when they had Danny Green, Dwight Howard, KCP would be another guy that would be somewhere on that list. The only thing that I'm a little bit hesitant about with KCP is that he is kind of become a hesitant shooter, similar to Tobias Harris. He's a good shooter, but he's not exactly a Danny Green unconscious shooter, which I think the Sixers need as many of those in their rotation as possible. But he is a starter level player with two years left on his deal. He's a good player. Uh, I think I just, I believe in what he could bring to the Sixers uh, as a starter or a guy off the bench. If Matisse Thibel were to start instead of him. Uh, Another guy on my list is Patrick Beverly, who's going into the last year of his deal with the Clippers. They won't have Kawhi Leonard next year. So it's possible that they look at it like Patrick Beverly is going to be like 35 years old once his contract is up. 
They might see it as a way to maybe potentially get someone like George Hill, maybe a, another first late first round pick to try to kind of either stack asset, assets, get young guys on, on cheap contracts in. I think Beverly would be a fantastic backup point guard. Or if we trade Ben Simmons and get Bradley Beal or even Damian Lillard, like he could start next to either of those guys. But the, obviously those two trades, the Damon Beal trade, seem like long shots at this point. But I just think that anyone who can shoot and defend and handle the ball a little bit is going to be super beneficial to this Sixers team, whether they keep Ben Simmons and Tobias Harris or they trade them. So I think those are some guys to look after. Uh, guys on the next tier down I have here are Jeremy Lamb, who is was coming off the injury last year, wasn't quite as effective. He makes about the same amount of money as George Hill. George Hill's from Indianapolis, so he would go back to the Pacers. Um, could be an interesting move for them just because I think that they might be trying to get some some cheaper contracts on their books. They have a lot of guys that they need to move this offseason. Uh, another guy, Tomas Sadoransky from the Bulls. He's fine. Uh, kind of similar to George Hill and that I don't think he's going to move the needle all that much, but he can do the things that the Sixers would need from him as a backup point guard. Same with DeLon Wright, uh, who Marty Teller mentioned as a target if we were to trade for Bradley Beal or Damian Lillard, just a, a point guard who can defend and score a little bit, and he's a good passer. He, he'd be fine as well. Uh, some other guys on my list, Larry Nance Jr. from the Cavs, who – apparently is on the move for some reason. I don't know why he's very good. Uh, he would fill that stretch four or five that can play with Embiid or play as his backup that they've needed for so long. I don't know what his value would be. I've heard that they are looking for like two first round picks. Apparently they had deals for that at the deadline that they turned down, which I don't believe that they were just trying to set the market for him. But Larry Nance Jr. would be a great fit on the Sixers. He's just a good player. He's got two years left on his deal. So you could do a George Hill, the 28th pick, and maybe, I don't know, Shake Milton or something like that. Terrence Ross is another guy. I've mentioned him plenty of times before. George Hill in the 28th pick would definitely get this done. I think the Magic are looking to move on from him. He's essentially a bucket getter guy off the bench. He can shoot. Uh, not a great defender, but I'm not too worried about that. I think the Sixers need as many scores as possible. Uh, finally, uh, last few guys here for this list, we have Justin Holiday, who I've mentioned a hundred times on the podcast. If you haven't heard me talk about him before, just go back and listen to the older episodes where I discuss why it would be beneficial to get Justin Holiday. He's got a great contract. He can shoot, he can defend. I think he'd be a fantastic fit with the Sixers. Another guy that I actually think might be gettable is Joe Ingles. And Joe Ingles is one of the more underrated players in the NBA. He's a fantastic secondary creator, really good passer, really good shooter, high volume shooter. He isn't quite the defender that he once was, but he can still like defend within a team concept. My only issue with him is he is a little bit older and he makes a lot of money. He makes like $14 million a year. So you would essentially do that George Hill, Tolliver, and maybe the 28th pick package for him, but I think that that could be fantastic value. I know Marty's very high on him. The only thing that I do worry about with a lot of these guys is that some of them are just older and that like the Sixers just saw with George Hill that it is a risk when you're trading for these guys in their mid thirties, as opposed to trading for a guy who's 27 or 29 or whatever. But those guys, if they're good, they tend to be a lot harder to acquire in a trade. So this is kind of what we're working with. All right. Last few, by low targets. Lonnie Walker from the Spurs. I don't think that the Sixers would be interested in him, but I just like his upside. Apparently, they were connected to Aaron Holiday of the Pacers as well. They, they've shown some interest. I, 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 He's fine. Uh, he's like 24, 25. Um, he would be the least exciting of the Holiday brothers for the Sixers to acquire. Uh, he can shoot. He can defend. So at least you have that. But like... He's very undersized. He hasn't shown much in his first three years in the NBA. But I'm also kind of in the camp that, like, no one sucks. <laughs> to quote Mike Levin for the Rights to Ricky Sanchez podcast, like, no one is a total lost cause. And you might be able to find a role. But I just, like, look at it like he's going into the last year of his rookie deal, so he'll need an extension. 
he doesn't have a clean fit with the Sixers. Like it doesn't really seem like a Maury move, but I don't know. Maybe he's just trying to take swings on guys that he could see as potential shot creators for this team. And Justin holiday fits the mold. I'd rather just try to stay at 28 and draft a guard. Like some of the guys that we discussed on this podcast, but it's, it's possible. It's possible that they actually are interested and they could bring him in. Uh, Cam Reddish is another guy. I've never been a big Cam Reddish guy. Um, I know that he shot really well in the playoffs and like you can see his build and you can see some flashes in his game, but he's like 21 or 22 now. He's, I think he's got two years left on his rookie deal. He's apparently being floated out there in packages. And I'm like, if the Hawks are this brilliant team that is like develop drafting and developing talent to become like championship level contender level, they just beat us in the playoffs. Like, and they're willing to let Cam Reddish go with two years left on his rookie deal. I think that that might say a little bit about what they think about what his potential will be. That's all I'm going to leave it at. Obviously, he's a Philly guy. If they traded for him, I'd be fine with it. I, I think I'd rather just take a, a shot on one of the high upside wings at 28 that we mentioned instead of doing this. But if they do it, it's fine. Uh, and then the last guy is Jared Culver. I don't really have any interest in Jared Culver, but he's apparently acquirable for a second round pick. So if you traded back from 28 and maybe got another player and then used that pick you got in the 30s or 40s to acquire Jared Culver, just to kind of take a look at him, I mean, he was a top six pick. This fits the mold for the kind of guy that Maury tends to look after, like reclamation projects, the Hashim Thabit he traded for the Johnny Flynn he traded for these guys that are Ben McLemore, who he signed in free agency. Like these guys that were at one point really highly touted guys coming out of college that never really panned out in the NBA. And you can maybe try to figure out a role for them. And like, I, I don't watch much Timberwolves. I don't think that Culver has done anything too impressive so far, but maybe new situation. I mean, I'm not, totally against the idea. I, I just think that the Sixers need to take as many cracks at guys this offseason that could potentially have that upside, which is why a lot of the guys that I had connected to them in the draft just are those high upside guys. Like, I don't think that they have enough talent to the point where they can just be like, all right, we're content with running it back and plugging in a marginal upgraded backup point guard or just getting like one veteran player. Like I think the Sixers need to make as many moves as they can to improve this team and change the ceiling of this team. And if that means reclamation projects, if that means, you know, just taking swings on guys in the draft, if that means trading a bunch of stuff, I'm fine with that. You know, we were, we were linked to buddy healed. Uh, apparently once again, it wouldn't be an off season without the Sixers being linked to buddy healed, but like I could see the fit here. If you could make that trade work, in a way that like if you were to have to trade Tobias Harris and maybe you could bring in him and Harrison Barnes, or if you were to be able to cobble up the salaries to trade for Buddy Heald, maybe use the trade exception and trade George Hill and the player that you take into the trade exception to trade for Buddy Heald. He makes $22 million a year. That's a lot, but he is a very high volume shooter and the Sixers need as many of them as they can get, especially if they're keeping this core intact. So I appreciate you guys listening to the podcast. That's all my thoughts on the draft and maybe some things around it. My gut says they trade the pick. I hope they keep the pick. And if they do trade it, I hope that it's for an impact guy and someone that you can plug in right away and is more effective than George Hill was. No disrespect to George Hill. He's a good player. But it's it, it's just time to, to really start nailing these moves on the margins that uh, – Maury surprisingly didn't his first year, but uh, I'm excited to see what happens and I'll talk to you probably during the draft. So I think I'm going to do a live stream on Twitter spaces. So keep an eye out for that on your Twitter feed. Going to go live with some people that uh, know a lot more about the draft than me. And hopefully they can uh, teach you some things about some prospects and we can talk, uh, talk six or straights. Peace.